All right, we will have to see how this works with a corded mic. So, believe it or not, by popular demand, we are going to be beginning a series I have entitled Revelation for Not Crazy People. And so that's right, for the next eight weeks, we are going to be going through the book of Revelation, and we're going to be trying to piece together some more bits about what's going on here. Uh, So now we saw a couple of weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, uh, Revelation 12, we had this story about this dragon and this woman and her sprouting these eagle's wings and the ground opening up to rescue her from the flood, and it, it just really crazy, really trippy stuff. It's, and this is a taste Uh, just a taste of what's going to be happening uh, coming up in Revelation. It's so weird and so interesting at the same time. It's great. So the book of Revelation is controversial. It's always been controversial. Uh, Like back in the day, I mean way back when they were forming the canon, so this is like 3rd, 4th, 5th century when they're trying to figure out which books do we put in the Bible and trying to lock that down, It was still controversial. There were arguments about whether or not Revelation should be in the book at all, in the Bible. And it's continued to be controversial for the entirety of the last 2,000 years uh, in a way that the rest of the Bible just somehow is not. For the last two millennia, people have been trying to make heads or tails out of it to try and figure it out, to try and map which events of the book map onto which current events and, and so we see all these kinds of movements coming out of that saying, oh, I figured it out. Uh, Obama's the Antichrist, or the Pope, or Mikhail Gorbachev, or whoever. Fill in your pious conspiracy theory. Um, it's, it it's just brings forward all this kind of stuff. And so our goal for the next eight weeks is going to be, how do we responsibly read Revelation, still getting at the power that is latent in the text, but not going off the deep end. All right, that's our plan. Does that sound all right? Good answer. I don't know what you would, I would have done if you said no. Um, so before we start, a few preliminary things. Revelation, singular, not revelations. There's one. Are we good? On board? Wow, you guys, you guys were responsive to the first thing. Okay. Um, all right. Um, so, yeah, one revelation. But, Colin, what's a revelation? Oh, wow, thanks for asking. Um, it comes from that same root of the word reveal, right? And so it's like God is revealing to us something that we wouldn't have known otherwise to humans. And so that's the whole story of what's going on in this book, is that John gets a sneak peek into what's happening with the apocalypse. But Colin, what's the apocalypse? You ask great questions, guys. I love it. Um, so when we think about our word apocalypse, like in our popular culture, right, what do you think of? You think of, uh, you know, the world exploding, right? Everything, everybody dying in the world, blowing up, and, you know, just everything ceasing to be, right? Which is different from the way that the Bible talks about apocalypse. Because for the Bible, um, there's, so there's actually a whole genre of Jewish 
literature from this time that's apocalypses, and, and it's not about everything being destroyed. It's, it's about God stepping into history and making things right that were broken and, and that weren't the way that they should be. And so God is fixing life and getting things back to how it should be. And so it's not the end of history. It's moving toward this new, better epoch. But that's enough about that. We'll hit that a lot more in depth in the coming weeks. So now let's remind ourselves what we heard this morning. So our main character, our narrator, John, he's a guy named John. He's not the same John from several weeks ago, nor is he the same John that's hanging out with Jesus. Uh, What can I say? John is a common name. That's our thing to deal with. Uh, So we're writing around the year 95 or so. So this is about 95 or so. So this is about 30 years after Jesus. Um, And uh, no, 60 years after Jesus. My math is bad. this is why I should look at my script. Um, 60 years after Jesus, which means, which in that time, actually, is like one and a half to two lifespans, right? So we're, we're a chunk afterwards. And our friend John has moored, has found himself moored and exiled on this island called Patmos, where there was this Roman a prison colony. And he was exiled there because of his faith in Jesus. And so he's chilling on this desert island, uh, more actually a rocky, craggy island, and he enters into this spiritual ecstatic trance. Now, we've talked about this a little bit back a couple weeks ago with Romans 12, but there's this phenomenon, spiritual ecstatic trances that happen across space and time, and it goes back as far as shamanism, which is uh, the oldest profession that we know of, and it goes back in this area of the world 11,000 years. And so... Uh, for example, what this trance looks like in shamanism, right, is there's this, um, often this repetitive motion or rocking or singing this very repetitive song or something like that to help the person, uh, to help the shaman get past the mundane, the everyday. And then they go on this journey, this heavenly out-of-body journey, and see these fantastical things in the heavenly realm that they would not have seen otherwise, which sounds a little bit like Revelation, as we will see. And so this, um, this type of ecstatic trance we see throughout the world. We see throughout the world in all sorts of different forms, and we see it here with John. And so he's in this ecstatic trance, right? And he receives a vision. He turns around, and he sees this larger-than-life Christ, and every aspect of him is glowing and radiant, and his hair, it's, it's not some dirty white. No, it's the purest white you've ever seen, right? And, and this golden, brilliant golden sash around him, and it's this larger-than-life cosmic Christ that's standing around, and he's in the midst of these lampstands, seven lampstands around him, these big lampstands, and on top these little oil lamps, and, and Jesus in his hand has seven stars, stars, and John starts out being terrified. But Jesus is like, cut it out. Write this down. I will tell you what's going on here. These seven stars in my hands 
are the angels of the seven churches, and these lampstands are seven churches. To which John replies, ah, okay, got it, thanks. Completely clear. Um, so, yeah, not exactly sure what's going on. So I, I don't have any clue what's going on uh, in this, but, I mean, so we have basic contours, right? We have basic contours of what this means. So these, as we'll see next week, these seven churches, or the seven churches he's writing this book to, um, that was the big list of names we read earlier, um, and then the seven angels is, you know, at that time there was this belief that each church had a, a kind of a guardian or a patron angel. Um, so, I mean, those are, right, we can get the contours of it, but what is that? I mean, what is happening? It, I have no clue how to make sense of this. So, welcome to Revelation. Get used to it. Um, because this book is layered with so much symbolism. It's so deep. It's baked into the story. And for John, each of these numbers and colors and descriptors, they have this deeper meaning. And frankly, sometimes it's pretty hit or miss as to whether or not we can actually figure out what that meaning is in our modern times. But so basically... For example, any time you see a number, any time you see a number in the book of Revelation, it symbolizes something. We may or may not know what it symbolizes, but it symbolizes something. And so, and that can get so frustrating because, right, that just tees up people for, uh, for reading all sorts of stuff into this book, right? Because... We know these numbers have a deeper meaning, which just helps out people who are like, oh, if you do this mathematical equation to these numbers, we now know that Obama's the Antichrist. Uh, you know, it, it just leads to this kind of stuff. And, but again, we're, not, we're doing revelation for not crazy people. So we are going to see what we can get out of this. Nonetheless, so think about the number seven, right? It's a good number, one of my top ten numbers, one through ten. Um, it's, so number seven, think about that. Of, it's going to come back all the time in this book. Where do we see the number seven in the Bible? Think way back at the beginning, creation, think about... The world was made in seven days. God rested from God's creation because on the seventh day because everything was completed, everything was whole, everything was as it should be. So seven is a good number, right? Seven indicates that things are how they should be. So in this book, we see the number seven associated with the good guys a lot. And... Well, so I don't know what the heck is going on with these lampstands and, you know, lamps and stars, but you know what I do know is that seven is a good number, right? So there being seven of them, this is a very positive scene, right? This radiant cosmic Christ with all these, these sevens 
around him, right? It, this is not the dramatic, ba ba ba, you know, m- music happening in the background when there's a villain about to attack, right? It's not that. This is the peaceful music that lets you know that this scene is is how things should be, right? And <clears throat> this is the thing. Through all this symbolism, behind all these numbers and rich descriptions and this is, is this narrative world that John is inviting us into. In, John is inviting us through our imagination to participate in what is happening. Because as we're going to see throughout this series, in this book, it is all about imagination. It is all about creating alternatives. Because, yeah, the superpower of Rome is dominating us and dominating the entire known world, yes. And here's the thing. When you're in charge, the thing is you get to also control the mental sphere. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. So to get our minds around this, let's think about what political scientists call the Overton window. And so... It's this idea that out of every thought, every possible thought that you could have, right, there's this window of what your culture allows for you to think, is acceptable for you to think. Uh, So you can think this, right, and you can be uh, right or left or center, right, but you are on the spectrum. But if you think this or this, right, you're not even within that window, within that spectrum. It just is not thinkable. It does not compute, right? And so let, let's put some flesh on this, see, see what it might have to do with revelation. <clears throat> Five years ago, white nationalism, white supremacy, not particularly on our radar of our national discourse, right? There's a, a few, you know, crazy folks uh, heading out in southern Idaho or something, but really, they're not on the spectrum. They're, not, they're outside of that Overton window, right? And you could be left or right, but those neo-Nazis just were not on the spectrum. But then over the last three years or so, right, we have the rise of the alt-right and the white nationalism. And now the window has opened wider to encompass them to include them in it. And for sure, they're way far right, right? And most people completely reject that view, and rightly so. But now they're on the spectrum at all, right? Now they're in the conversation. And they've shifted the bounds of what the window includes. They've opened it up wider to include themselves, And so John in Revelation is doing a parallel thing. Now, don't get me wrong. The content is worlds different from white nationalists, right? And polar opposites, actually, and considerably less vile. But the mechanics of what they're trying to do are the same. It's because the empire of Rome says your options are this or this or this. But John is saying no. He's saying you've got to use your imagination 
to think beyond these categories that limit you to what the empire wants. But rather, think of God's future, right? Completely different, outside of that window of what could be. But, and God's future is not one of this empire rooted in violence. It's, this, it's the liberation of the oppressed and giving of life to the world and setting things the way they should be. And you can't get there by coloring inside the lines that Rome gives you by situating yourself within that window of possibilities. Rather, you get there by engaging in God's new countercultural vision of what the world can and should be. And this is what John is going to call us back to again and again over the next couple months. This idea that God's vision is new, that we should participate in imagining what could be in the world. So this week, think a little bit. Is what God is calling you to do, whatever realm that may be in, whatever facet of your life, is what God is calling you to do one of these options that we have kind of pre-made, readily available for us? Or is God calling you to imagine what could be? May you never close yourself off to what God the creator, God the creative, might be calling you to do and to be. May it be so.